here's what we're going to do over the next 29 weeks. We're going to study the book of Revelation. I, was, I did this study four, five, maybe six years ago, and a lot of you have not taken part in this study. And I was asked to do it, especially in light of some uh, things that are happening in the world. You know, every time we have an earthquake or some sort of natural disaster or a man-made disaster like the Gulf oil spill, and especially right now, there's a lot of stuff out there. People are really interested in the apocalypse. Does everybody understand what we mean by the apocalypse? It's the end of the world. And one of the big things, if you read the tabloids, is, is there's a lot of fascination with people who don't know Jesus with the Mayan calendar. And I think the Mayan calendar is predicting it in, in 2012, I think. You know, and supposedly the Mayans knew when the world was going to end. I say, well, you know, hey, they didn't know when their own civilization was going to end. How can we trust them about when the world was going to end? The other thing is, there's a guy by the name of Harold Van Camping. How many of you have heard of Harold? He has, he's on one of the, I think he's on a station around here. He's predicting May 11, 2011. And now, you have to understand something about Harold. He predicted 1994 as well. So here we are, 16 years later, and it hasn't happened yet. So if you really need to know, and the Bible even tells you, that you need to be aware of the things that are going to happen in the end. So what we're going to do today is basically a background approach, just kind of give you some background information before we start the study through the book of Revelation. So we're going to be in Lesson 1 right now, and we're going to start off here uh, looking at some background material that you need to be aware of concerning the book of Revelation. So first thing we want to do is we want to have a realistic approach. Here's what we need to understand. We need to recognize that good Christians have different views. Let me just stop here for a moment. I need to reiterate that with you for a moment. When it comes to the return of Jesus Christ, there is a diversity of viewpoints out there among God's people. And it has been that way ever since the time of Jesus. When Jesus said he was coming back, and then he ascended, and, you know, and, and he was told in like manner he'll come, so he's going to come bodily as he left bodily. From the time of the apostles on, so from the time of John, we figure John died somewhere around AD 90. From that time period on, there had been a diverse number of views concerning when Jesus Christ would come back. Now the problem is today, especially in our circles of churches, we can get pretty dogmatic about our view. And we can actually condemn others because maybe they hold to something else. And, and what I'm trying to say to you is, is that with prophecy, you can understand some things, but you can't fully understand them until they happen. For instance, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. The Jews in Jesus' day knew that the Messiah was going to come. Will everybody agree with that? Now, what they understood about the Messiah was is that the Messiah was going to be a conquering hero. Were they correct? Yes. What they didn't grasp and what they overlooked was that he would be a suffering Messiah from Isaiah 53, that he would suffer 
for our transgressions. So they couldn't grasp, and even the apostles, up until the time when Jesus was crucified, it was only at the resurrection that they understood. Do you understand? Only at the resurrection did the apostles truly understand the prophecies concerning Jesus. So when you talk about prophetic language and prophecies in the Bible, you have to be careful how dogmatic you are. Which maybe will help clarify some things to you. You've got to be careful about every prophecy guy that you listen to, no matter how much you like him. Because the fact of the matter is, every generation since the last apostle has thought that their generation is when Jesus is coming back, and they could see the prophecies being fulfilled around them, but you can't be dogmatic. He's coming back, but, well, I'll give you an example here in a moment. So, we need to recognize that good Christians have different views. In fact, here, let me just quote somebody to you, a church father by the name of Justin Martyr. He lived sometime around A.D. 100 to A.D. 165. So, he's in that generation right after the Apostle John. Okay, here's what he said. Justin said openly that not all Christians share expectation. What is his expectation? That Jesus will come back and establish his kingdom. I and many others are of this opinion, he wrote, and believe that such will take place. But on the other hand, many who belong to the pure and pious faith and are true Christians, he writes, think otherwise. So, here's what the writer wrote who wrote about this. He said, such tolerance was not given for any other doctrine. So, when it came to Justin Martyr, if you were going to argue with him and say there was no resurrection, he was pretty intolerant about that. There was a resurrection. But when it came to the return of Jesus Christ, he recognized that others had different views. And he wasn't as dogmatic. So, here's the thing. All right? Here's what I want you to see. Don't be dogmatic about your interpretation. Don't be dogmatic about what you think is the fulfillment of a certain prophecy. Because here's what's going to happen. Sooner or later, you might be proved wrong. Bottom line. And you know what? Can I be honest with you? The road is filled with guys who were dogmatic and who were proved wrong. How many of you remember Hal Lindsey? Late great planet Earth in the 70s. Hal lost his credibility with what? His prediction that it would happen in 1984. You realize that? See, you've you got to be careful. If you think you understand, because prophecy is, is very difficult for others to understand. Do you understand? So, here's some examples. Let me give you some examples. In your book, The Identity of the Antichrist. Here's where the church has tried to be very dogmatic about, but they have failed. So the church has many times tried to identify who the Antichrist is. So I think, I think I don't know, let me see your books. Yeah, you've got nine slots there. I'm going to give you some names. I want you to write them down. And actually, there's a tenth name you can add to it. The first one is Nero. Folks have tried to identify Nero as the Antichrist. He's dead. He's been dead a long time. Number two, Martin Luther. The church, at one time, the Catholic Church identified him as the Antichrist. Not really the guy. Napoleon, Mr. Short Guy, was identified as the Antichrist. Hitler, 
Number four is Hitler. Adolf Hitler was identified as the Antichrist. Okay, you guys ready for number five? Hold on to your seats. Ronald Reagan. Now, anybody know why Ronald Reagan was identified as the Antichrist? Numbers of letters and because he was also had an assassination attempt on his life. Because, you know, right after he became president, it wasn't much longer that the assassination attempt took place. And because Ronald Wilson Reagan, there are six letters in his, in his 666, he was identified by some evangelicals as the Antichrist. Gorbachev was identified as the Antichrist. But some of you don't even, like, who's Gorbachev? He used to be, he was the last leader of the Soviet Union. And one of the interesting things about Gorbachev, if you look at his face, what does he have on his forehead? He's got a mark, a birthmark, a rather large birthmark. And so some evangelicals said, that's it, that's the mark of the beast. Let's go on. Pope John Paul II, he's dead now. But again, why would John Paul II be identified as the Antichrist? What happened in his life? There was an assassination attempt on his life, and he survived it. He also was the leader of a world religious body. So he was one. Here's another one. Bill Clinton. Some of you are laughing, but Bill Clinton was identified as by the church as being the Antichrist. Number nine, Saddam Hussein. Now, everybody knows he's not. He's dead now. And number ten, if you want to put number ten... This has happened just here in the last year and a half. Obama has been identified as the Antichrist. So here's the thing. The church has tried through the years. Now, if Obama doesn't turn out to be the, it's going to be the next guy. And the problem is, is if you get dogmatic, you end up being foolish. So if you think about it, the guys who said Ronald Reagan, Pope John Paul, if you knew that they're the ones who said these guys are the Antichrist, how much credibility do they have with you? Would they have any credibility with you? No, not at all, because you're thinking, where did you get that from? You know? So here's the thing. Recognize that the church has struggled to understand this book for centuries. The church has struggled to understand this book for centuries, I remember probably, I mean, it's probably been, it's eight years ago, I was uh, went down to the Dominican and uh, was teaching a group of pastors there. And one of the pastors told me through an interpreter that he knows of a pastor who tells his congregation, don't bother with the book of Revelation. Nobody can understand it, so don't bother studying it. It's a difficult book. Now, let's understand the purpose of the book. Now, there's a reason why the book exists, and I'm going to explain to you. It isn't so that you have a full picture of what's going to happen in the future. Let me say that again. There's a reason why we were given the book of Revelation. And it isn't so that you just have a full picture of what's going to happen later on. Here's the purpose. The purpose of the book is to provide hope in the midst of trials. 
When this book was written, and I believe it was written in A.D. 90, somewhere around that time when John was on the Isle of Patmos, because the Scripture tells us that, when he was in exile, the church was undergoing a severe persecution. And what you're going to see is, is throughout this book is an encouragement to persevere, an encouragement to stay strong, an encouragement to endure in spite of what you are going through. Because here, I'm going to show you, as it was shown to me, is what John is saying, what's going to happen in the end, and you are going to be victorious if you persevere. See, that's the whole issue of the book. It's not just to it's give you a glimpse of what's going on later, but it's to provide you with a hope. In spite of the hardships of this world, in spite of the hardships of what you may be going through, it's to give you hope later on down the road. But, hey, can I be honest with you? The book of Revelation, actually, for a lot of Christians, is not a source of hope, but a source of what? Fear. They're afraid of it. They're afraid of, of the things that are to come. And, and there's a good reason. When you read the stuff, it's some scary stuff happening. But the reason for the book is a source of hope. So here's what the purpose is, to provide hope in the midst of trials. Now, let's look at the author and the occasion of the writing. So let's talk about who the author is. The author of the book was the beloved disciple John. So it was the Apostle John. John wrote the book while imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. John wrote the book while imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. And pretty much from church history, we know that it was sometime around A.D. 90. Now, let me just stop for a moment. There's a group of folks who believe that everything has taken place and that Jesus has already come back in A.D. 70. They believe that this book was written before A.D. 70. Now, church history very much is pretty much gives a pretty good conclusion that it is already, this book was written in A.D. 90, 20 years after the fall of Jerusalem. 20 years after the fall of Jerusalem. So those guys, if you know somebody who holds that view, they're, they're, they've got some interesting views, but that is not possible. Here's the point I want you to see. It is the final revelation concerning the events surrounding the second coming. Here, I want you to add a line in there. You write this down because this will be a good point for you to understand as well. It is the final revelation concerning the events that are coming, but it is not a complete revelation. Now, before you throw a stone at me and say, What are you talking about? I want you to understand when you read through this book, John sees things, and it's written right in the text. He sees things, and he's told not to write them down. You understand? Right in the scripture, it'll say, and I saw it, but I was told not to write it down. So we have a revelation of the events surrounding the second coming, but it's not a complete revelation by the testimony of the scripture itself, simply because there are things that are going to happen that are not revealed to us. You understand what I'm saying? So it's, 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 a, it's a revelation concerning the events that are coming, but it's not a complete revelation by the Scripture's own testimony. And you're going to see several different occasions where he saw something, heard something, and he was told not to write it down. So even though we ha what we have is what we need to know, it's not everything there is to know. Do you understand what I'm saying? So all the details are not there, but the details that we need to know are there. 
Do you understand? So that's the point I want you to see. Now, if we're going to understand the book of Revelation, we need to have some sort of guide to give us an understanding, and I think the text itself gives that to us. So let me give you the key verse. I want you to look at chapter 1, verse 19. So this where the key verse, the key to understanding the book is found in verse 19. So let me read to you verse 19. If you want to have an understanding, the author of the book tells you what is going on, and basically he's telling you the words of Jesus here that were communicated to him. Here's what I want you to see. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are, and notice what else, and the things which will take place after this. So let me read that to you again. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. So based upon that verse, we can get a basic outline. This is a pretty much a common accepted outline of this verse right here. Verse 19 is pretty much accepted by most of the scholars in our circle of churches in evangelicalism as being a key verse to understanding this book. But I want you to see there's a basic outline that we can come up with based upon this verse. And so that's what I'm going to give you right now. Number one is what you have seen. That's going to be chapter one. What you have seen is what we see recorded in chapter one. And that's the vision of Jesus that John has. All right? Point two, what is now? Remember what he said, write what you have seen. So that's what we're going to see in chapter one. Point two is what is now, and that's actually chapters two through three, and those are the letters to the seven churches. All right? Those are the letters to the seven churches. So basically, what number one, what you have seen, which is chapter one. I've got to give, let everybody be able to write this down. And then, what is now... Chapters 2 through 3. So if you're reading through, this will help you a little bit. If you're reading through the book of Revelation, this will give you an understanding. So chapter 1 is what he saw. What did he see? The vision of Jesus. What is now? He's writing letters to seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 at that time concerning issues that they were struggling with. And then the third point is, is what will take place later? That's chapters 4 through 22. From chapter 4 all the way to 22, it's addressing issues concerning what will take place in the future. So what we have seen, chapter 1, what is now, chapters 2 through 3, and what will take place later, chapters 4 through 22. Now here's a key phrase. There are actually a key phrase in the Bible that we're going to see over and over again. And we'll at it in several different places. So let's look at them here. In chapter 9, verse 20, if you turn to Revelation chapter 9, verse 20, there are some key phrases. Here, I'll read it for you. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, 
that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Let's continue on. Verse 21, And they did not repent of their murders and of their sorceries and of their sexual immorality or their thefts. Look at chapter 16 now, verse 9. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give Him glory. Now look at verse 11. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. To understand, in order to understand God's wrath, you need to understand the key phrase. When you understand what's going to happen as far as God's wrath being poured out on this world, that's what the book of Revelation is about. It's about the judgments and about God's wrath being poured out. There's a key phrase that you need to understand, and the key phrase is this. They didn't want to repent. Even in spite of all that God is doing and going to do, they wouldn't repent. They wouldn't repent. Now, let's stop for a moment. How does that help you to understand the purpose of God's wrath? How does that help you to understand the purpose? What is the purpose of God's wrath then? Yeah, to turn back to Him. And what does it tell you? Do they do that? No. In fact, let me just stop for a moment. You know, we've had, you know, in the last ten years, we've had disasters here in our country. We've had natural disasters. We've had man-made disasters like 9-11. We've had man like the Gulf thing now. We've had hurricanes that wiped out communities and so forth. Have you seen a great turning back to God because of those? For a few moments. And then life gets back to normal and what? They don't really need Him. See, I want you to understand the purpose of God's wrath. The purpose of God's wrath, and this is even good for as far as understanding the purpose of God's chastisement in your life, is to get you back on track with Him. And what you're going to see throughout this book is that they refuse to repent. In fact, not only do they refuse to repent, they curse who? God. They curse Him. They reject Him. They're angry with Him. In fact, isn't that what you hear when you hear in the news? Like, you know, when Katrina happened and wiped out New Orleans or when an earthquake happens and, this, and people get killed and everything. You'll hear people call up talk shows, if you listen to them, and they'll get upset and they'll, usually they'll say things like this, Why would God allow this to happen? What's that attitude expressing there? Who are they blaming? God. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's all part of the issue of blaspheming God. It's saying that God is doing evil. Can God do evil, folks? No, He can't do evil. So what you're going to see is, is you're going to see a couple of key themes that run through this book. If you want to, you can write this down. There's some, there should be some space there for that question. But use it for these two key themes, okay? Here's the key thing. For believers, the key theme is perseverance. For you as a believer, persevere in spite of the hardship, in spite of the difficulties, in spite of all that could go wrong, 
You persevere. One of the things you're going to hear, especially in chapter 2 and 3, is, is, the, is Jesus is, is, is he's telling John to write these letters to these churches. He makes a statement. To him who overcomes, I will give. The issue is overcoming. What am I to overcome, folks? This world and the life that it has. And let's just say, is, is it a sweet world? Is it a sweet life? No, it's got hardships, doesn't it? It's got difficulties. It's got struggles. Don't buy in the subtle lie of prosperity theology that is going around in our churches today that as a Christian everything's supposed to be great and wonderful for you. That is not true. You will learn real quickly that bad things happen and they happen unexpectedly. Bottom line, period. And that has nothing to do with the fact that maybe God's angry with you, it just has to do that you live in this world that's marked by sin. So the issue, the theme for the Christian is perseverance. The theme for the unbeliever is repentance. But here's the problem. They refuse. They refuse to repent. You know, here's another key word you can use. It's testing. What you see here is actually a testing of humanity. Because what you're going to see in this book is, is that Jesus is going to come back and then he's going to establish a thousand-year reign. And then at the end of that thousand years, of all the crazy things, King Jesus is on the throne. He's ruling. Everybody sees him. And at the end of the thousand years, the enemy is released. Satan is released from his bondage. And he deceives the nations. And guess what? They rise up against Jesus. Mankind, even with Jesus being there, will rise up against him. And it's not much of a battle. If you read the Bible, it just says fire came from heaven and consumed him. Boom. Vaporized. The issue is, is that I want you to see, it's a testing of humanity. And how do we do with the test? We fail. Now, here's what we're going to do, just so you understand. What we're going to do is we're going to spend... Starting next week, we're going to look at uh, chapter 1. I think the next two weeks, we're going to look at chapter 1 and 2 of what we have seen. And then we're going to spend seven weeks going through the seven churches. We're going to take one church a week because there's a lot there in those few verses that you and I need to grasp because there's a message there because it's about what's taking place right now. We're going to see what he's trying to communicate. And then after that, we're going to start with chapter 4, and we're going to allow John to give us a glimpse of what's going to take place later. What's being said and orchestrated. And one of the things you're going to see from chapter 4 is this. He's the one who starts the process. Do you understand what I'm saying? And in fact, chapter 4 talks about the one being on the throne and having this great scroll with many seals. And, and the question is raised, who can open the seals? Who can take the scroll and open the seals? And no one could be found except one. And, and the one who takes it was the lamb who was slain. Who is that, folks? Jesus. See, Jesus will start this period that will come. Any questions? Any thoughts? Any questions about what we're going to study or what we're going to look at? Anybody? Well, the preterists believe that everything took place, it's called preterism, 
they believe that everything, all the prophecies, everything that Jesus pointed to in Matthew 24, everything took place in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed in, in Jerusalem. And so they believe that Jesus came back. Yeah. Well, I don't know. You know, that's, that's the crazy thing. I don't understand what they're living for. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because that, to me, is totally crazy. Because the fact of the matter is, when the Bible's very clear. When Jesus comes back, the world changes. The world didn't change in AD 70. I mean, it changed for the Jew, but it didn't change for the rest of the world. I mean, the Bible very clearly says that the nations will see him come, and they will mourn. I don't know how, you could, how, how that could be missed that he came in AD 70. Do you understand what I'm saying? So that's a pretty, pretty unusual viewpoint. And this world will change when Jesus comes, bottom line. Because he is King of kings, Lord of lords, ruler. I mean, if you think about it, just, just the very thought process will tell you, if you really think about it, when you talk about Jesus coming back to establish his kingdom, King of kings, he's going to rule with a rod of iron, the Bible says very clearly. When you think about those things, would a guy who's ruling with a rod of iron allow the stuff to happen now? Do you understand what I'm saying? That's why I'm trying to say to you, if you truly understand what the books are telling you and what the Scripture is telling you, what it reveals to you, because it's not a complete revelation, you can quickly say, you know, that just doesn't make sense what you believe. Yeah. And, and let me explain to you. Say, well, how do we, should we approach the Bible? Well, this is a good place for me to say this. You want to approach it not from the way you look at things in 2010, Kerwinsville, Clearfield County. You want to look at it from the who is writing it, who they were writing it to, the historical, grammatical, contextual, I mean cultural viewpoint of what they viewed back then, how they viewed life back then. Do you understand? And when you get that, you'll understand. So it's good for Christians like you to have basic Bible tools like what, George? Get a Bible dictionary. Get a Bible atlas. There are some books out there now that talk about the culture and customs of the Bible. Get those. Bible background books. Those just Even just three books like that will help you in helping to understand the Bible and understanding what it says. Isn't that what I do when I preach to you guys? I'll say, this is the context. This is what it means to be a tax collector. So what they're doing, Bruce, is, is that... And here's the problem. When you talk to those guys, that's all they talk about. Nothing else in Christianity matters but that. They all, that's all they talk about. Their focus is consumed with one point, eschatology. But let me ask you something. When you read the Bible, does the Bible talk more than about just the return of Jesus? It talks about what? Life right now for you. How you should live your life. It talks about Jesus. It talks about God. See, but and this is not just with those folks. You've got to be very careful with folks, because there's a lot of them on TV, but you've got to watch out for guys who are totally focused on one thing only. And if their focus is eschatology, they're going to go. And that's what happens with the guys who set dates, because you can only study it so much and then only go over so many things, trying to figure out what the hair on this thing looked like and what toe meant this and, you know, and, and, and all this stuff before eventually you're going to set a date. Because you've got to keep people listening to you. 
Because there's only so much stuff there. Do you understand what I'm saying? And it's a broad picture. Here, let me also warn you real quick. I'll just go ahead and warn you. How many of you have read the Left Behind series? Can I remind you of something? I mean, the guys who wrote it are solid guys. All right? It's fiction. It is one man's viewpoint of what he believes the Bible is saying concerning prophecy. So don't go looking for Nikolai. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you haven't read the series, you don't know who I'm talking about. That's the Antichrist in the book. It's, it's, it's a good thing. Like For instance, I haven't read the series, but it, when, they, when the last book came out about the return of Jesus, I was interested to see how they would handle certain things. So I'm at Walmart, and I break open a book and turn to where the judgment of the Antichrist and the beast take place. So I just wanted to see how they handled that. And it's, you know, it's interesting, but that's not Bible. Your understanding of what's going to take place comes from this. Not Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. Okay? Your understanding comes from this. And so what we want to do is we want to approach this book, verse by verse, give you a historical understanding of what's going on so that you can have an idea, i got a hope. Because no matter how terrible things are, I need to persevere. Okay? Anybody else with a question real quick? Yeah. Can more than one church... I, you know what? Can I answer? I'm going to just tell you right off the bat. The Church of Philadelphia is the church that lived in Philadelphia. Bottom line. Because there are some people who view that church... Here, I, let me help you to understand. Okay? When you take a text out of its context, you're left with a con. Everybody understand? That church that he wrote to existed in A.D. 90. It would not make sense for him to write a letter to a church that was in 2010. Do you understand what I'm saying? It wouldn't make sense. If you lived in Philadelphia and you're in the church and you got this letter and Jesus' intention is to write to a church 2,000 years later, is that going to make sense to you? No, not at all. He's writing to the people right there in that church of Philadelphia. Now, are there principles? Are there things from those churches that we can apply to churches today? Yes, you better believe it. That's what we're going to look at. But I want you to understand, when he writes to seven churches, it's not seven church ages, as some people would say in our circles. You know, this is certain parts of the church age. That, that wouldn't make sense to the average reader. Do you understand? The Bible was writ, not written for scholars. It was written in Koine Greek. Now, what's Koine Greek? That would be like writing in western central Pennsylvania talk with read up in Yunes as being a part of the text. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you know what I'm saying? Or, or like yesterday, you know, huh? It was common language, yes. You know, like yesterday we were, we were with family and we were boating and, and Hudson's doing the thing and they say, leave go of the rope. I said, you mean let go of the rope? Leave go of the rope. I mean, what, what is that? Western PA talk, you know? Yeah, y'all. Now that is in the Bible. I can show you lots of passages where Paul says, you all, okay? Okay. All right. But here, here's what I want you to see. The Bible was written in common language. 
It wasn't written in High Greek, scholarly, classical Greek. It was written in the street language of people. Why? Because who's reading it, folks? Yes. Now, and, and when they're writing to them, they're going to write to them in a way that they understand what's going on. So if it's a church to Laodicea, guess what? It's about the stuff going on where? In Laodicea. He's not talking about Laodicea, USA. There is a Philadelphia. So, yes, there is a Philadelphia. But it's not to that Philadelphia. Okay? It's not to Ephesus, Georgia. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's to the people there. Now, you say, well, how do we... You draw the principles out. Do you understand what I'm saying? You draw the principles out and you apply them to your life now. Do you understand? So you've got to be careful in how you study the Bible. All right, let's, let's close our time and uh, we'll get ready for the morning worship service.